Let's stand together. We're going to read verses 1 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. Verses 1 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah say, or prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whatever reviles or whoever reviles uh, father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you are no longer, uh, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declares all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we, we need your help this morning. We are completely dependent <clears throat> on your Holy Spirit's ministry of illuminating your word to our hearts. Without your help, Lord, these are just words on a page, and we ask that through this time as we, we unpack this text and we consider what it means for us, that our hearts would be ready, that your Holy Spirit would have his full way with us, 
And that as a result of this time together, we will have changed step by step, becoming more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I ask specifically, based on the issues of this text, that that we who struggle with these particular issues, in particular, the issue of legalism, that you would help us to see what God desires, what is true, how the gospel impacts this world and our lives and undoes this legalistic attitude to reaching God. Lord, help us today, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Today I want to begin by taking you uh, into a Simeon Trust classroom, so to speak, as we would typically teach um, pastors um, as we go to places like Bolivia and Ukraine. And one of the principles, probably the first principle we teach, is called staying on the line. And the point of this principle is to establish the fact of how you approach the Word of God and how you consider what the Word of God is saying. And the principle basically says this. We must stay on the line of Scripture, never straying above it or below it. Now, friends, this is really, really important. Because if you say more than the Scripture is saying, you are heading toward legalism. In other words, you're adding to the Word of God. If you are saying less than the text is saying, then you are heading toward license or antinomianism. For example, if in Scripture it talks about, and it does here in the passage, it talks about adultery. But I don't want to talk about adultery. I wouldn't want to offend people. So I use a softer word. I would use the word affair instead. I have fallen short of what the text is actually saying. The principle is we need to understand what the text is saying, not add to it and not detract from it. And there's always a temptation or a tendency to want to do one or the other. And we've got to fight to make sure we stay on the line of Scripture. You'll see that played out here in a negative way as we work through this text together. Now, having said that, I want us to think about our Thanksgiving gatherings. Everyone, I'm sure, enjoyed Thanksgiving. And as J.D. said, there's a little bit more of us here today than there was last week, if you know what I'm saying. One of the things we love about Thanksgiving, yes, the turkey and the ham and the stuffing and, well, I'm not a stuffing guy, but all the other stuff is really, really good. But one of the things we love is desserts. You almost eat that Thanksgiving meal just so you can get to the desserts. Now, you have to understand, in the home, um, on Thanksgiving, it is Mama who is the police officer, right? And she sets aside the pies and the desserts on a table in a special place. And, and, and what happens is as the people arrive, the kids start going toward you know, that, that, that dessert table and they start looking at the pies. And then the other big kids, the men, do the same thing, right? And they start looking at the pies and they're checking it all out. And mama comes along, she says, don't you touch any of those pies. And so she scatters them off. 
And about 15 minutes later, she looks around the corner, and there they are again hovering over the pies, and they're kind of moving some of the pies. And she's like, hey, listen, don't you touch even the plate that the pie is on here. Okay, we won't touch the plate even. All right, that's fine. She goes away. 20 minutes later, she comes back, and guess who's there? Kids and more of the big kids are there because they're noticing what's there. And now she comes and says, hey, listen, don't you touch the table that the pies are on. And then a little while later, she says, all right, everyone out of this room. You are not allowed to go in this room because if you do, I know you're going to mess with the pies. And before long, the standard rule at Mama's house for Thanksgiving is don't you even look at a pie. Because if you look at a pie, you'll want that pie, and it's just going to get bad after that. Now, I share that illustration to help us understand a little bit about what is going on in this text and what goes on with the subject of legalism, how something good turns into something very, very sinful and apart from what God actually intends And friends, what we have in this text and what we see is true with Judaism in Christ's day is this presence of rules and regulations, what you might call a fencing in of God's law seeking to protect it. Now listen, um, we, we like our fences here in California. But if you've lived in other places around the world or even other places around our country, I, I was living in Michigan for, what, 12 years or so, and we did not have a fence around our property. In fact, <clears throat> it was more common to not have a fence around your property. And people from here go where they're like, how in the world do you do that? There's no lines, there's no fences. How do you know what's yours and what's not yours and all that kind of stuff? In my case, it was very easy because my neighbor was, had a really green thumb, and so his grass was always like really nice and green, and then there was mine, all right? So you, you, knew, you knew where my boundaries were, but we didn't have fences. But you come here to California, you're, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a piece of property here that doesn't have some kind of a fence around it. Now, why, why are fences there? They're, fences are there to keep people out, or in some cases, to keep people in, Right? And there's a number of fences, we might call them walls around the world that are pretty famous. The Great Wall of China, the desire there was to keep the enemies at bay, to keep them out from moving over and and invading. The Korean Wall, of course, divides the North and the South. The Berlin Wall once divided West Germany and East Germany. You remember that, West Germany? I still say that every once in a while when I'm talking soccer. Oh, England's playing West Germany. It's like, whoa, 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 that that goes back years ago. But you remember, there was a wall, and it was really significant when it came down. There's Hadrian's Wall in England, and it was built to protect the the British, basically, from the invasion of of the Picts coming down from the Scottish um, highlands, basically. There's the West Bank. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel and seen the wall in the West Bank. It's pretty intimidating. It's huge. And, of course, there's the wall that is somewhat being built on the Mexican border, right? And the goal is to keep people out or to keep people in. Now, the point is this. There are walls that have been erected 
in the pharisaical mindset out of good intentions. And how Mark presents that for us is found in verses 3 and 4. He explains what is actually taking place. He explains the purposes for these fences. Verse 3 and 4. Let's read it. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of the cups and the pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. So the Jewish elders had established traditions which were now being observed by all the Jews. In fact, the Mishnah, which is the compilation of Jewish oral law, puts together at the end of, uh, put together at the end of the second century, devoted 186 pages to the issue of how to wash things, how to wash your hands, how to wash a cup, how to wash a plate, how to, as it says there, dining couches. I mean, you know, I know you probably vacuumed your couch before people came over on Thursday, but this is all ceremonial stuff. So like many traditions that go wrong, this one started out from a biblical command. Now you can look up at the screen or you can look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter 30 and verses 18 through 19. And notice what it says. It says, you shall also make a basin of bronze. This is, this is God laying down the law and giving instructions to the priests who are working in the temple. All right? You shall also make a basin of bronze with a stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of the meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons, in other words, the priests, shall wash their hands and their feet. It's there. There it is in the Old Testament. But what the Pharisees did, someone with good intentions, thinking they want to be spiritual, they want to make sure that things are done right and done well and honoring to God, basically took what what was there, and, and added to it by saying, this is not just a requirement for the priests. This is also a requirement for the spiritual leaders, and this is a requirement for all the people. So by the time this came down to Jesus' day, this was the custom, this was the religious practice of all the Jews. This was the norm. This is what they did. What happened here, though, is that the Jewish rabbis were so consumed with being pure that they were willing to not stay on the line of Scripture. They added to Scripture. It doesn't say here that this washing is for all of Israel. It's instructions unique to the priests. You with me there? And as a result of that, the fence gets wider and wider and wider and becomes now a standard that everyone has to conform to. Now, the Pharisees took this stuff very seriously. One rabbi who failed to wash his hands in the prescribed manner was excommunicated. Another who was imprisoned by Rome almost died because he was using his daily ration of water to wash his hands rather than drink. Now, some other examples of this kind of legalism 
that is found in the, the Mishnah. Looking in the mirror on the Sabbath was forbidden for fear that you might see a gray hair. I would have trouble. And if I saw a gray hair, I might be tempted to pluck it out. And that plucking out was considered to be work. You were not allowed to wear your false teeth on the Sabbath for fear that they might fall out. And if you went to pick up your false teeth from the ground on the Sabbath, that was considered work. So, all you men, when your wife says, what are you doing, honey? I'm working. Changes the definition a little bit, right? Fortunately, however, if you wanted to spit on the Sabbath, you could do that. But just don't spit on the dirt and then walk on it. Because if you spit on the dirt and walk on it, it was considered tilling the ground. And tilling the ground is considered work. All right, you, see, you see the foolishness. The desire was for purity. The desire was that they would not break the law of God. And as a result of their desire to make sure that they didn't break the, the law of God, they added these rules and these regulations, which then became the standard. Now, by far, the issue of cleanliness was one of the biggest concerns in the Mishnah. As I mentioned, 186 pages were devoted to it. And this is the difference that, that we have between what, the, what we typically call tradition and the Tradition that the, the Pharisees or the Jews understood at their particular point in time. Notice in our passage that we have six statements about the tradition of the Pharisees. There is the tradition of the elders, that expression is used twice. The tradition of men, many other traditions, commandments of men, your tradition. All those expressions are used. Now these traditions of the elders were set against the commandment of God. It says they reject the commandments of God. Twice it says that. They make void the word of God. So in what ways were these traditions of the elders different than our traditions? Well, our traditions, we usually when we think about traditions, we think about we're celebrating Thanksgiving. This is a day set aside by our country, by our culture, to look back at the pilgrims who came to this country, the hardship they went through, and the, the almost uh, death full death experience that they had, but they were befriended by the Indians, they were helped by the Indians, and as a result of working together, they were, you know, they were brought back to health, and so they had a, a celebration, a, a feast together. And it was a time then uh, of great wonder and celebration and thanksgiving, and so that has continued on to be a tradition in our country. Or... Um, having a sweet 16 party or a quinceanera or some kind of coming of age is what we might consider to be a tradition. Um, it's, however, what we have here, the establishment and enforcement of oral law that is the tradition that's being talked about here. Now, what is oral law? Oral law is the teaching of the rabbis that is gathered together and collected into, in this volume called the Mishnah. So that when we talk about the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the, the, the Jewish leaders here, we're not talking about simply the choosing of days and that kind of stuff. We're talking about their, their beliefs, their, their teaching, their instruction on the Old Testament word of God. 
Okay, so it's a different concept. It's the oral law which is passed down. And if you violate that oral law, you're in deep trouble. In fact, they considered the oral law as superior even to the scriptures that that oral law was set to protect. And that's the way legalism works. It's subtle. It's often from well-intentioned people. Like I said, we're not talking here about physical cleanliness at all. We're talking about ceremonial cleanliness. So here's the ritual. They would wash their hands. They would wash their hands in a particular way. They'd let the water come down to their, to their wrists, and then they would put it down and the water would drip off of their fingers. There was a whole way to do it and you had to do it just right. Now, all of this has been introduction, okay? All this is kind of setting the stage for the actual encounter that we're going to see here. And what we're, what we're going to be talking about, what this passage is ultimately about, is Jesus confronting legalism head on. And he then reveals the true condition of man's heart. Legalism is not something God is in favor of. It is something that distorts his word, distorts his heart, his character, what he wants to reflect to mankind, what he has reflected through his word. So let's begin by considering um, how Jesus exposes the legalistic or the hypocritical heart. And I want you to notice the perceived problem of these defiled hands. Look at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, there was a delegation, friends, of, of scribes that have come from Jerusalem. This isn't the first time a, 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 the delegation or religious leaders had come to observe what was going on with Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 7, they're challenging Jesus when he heals the paralytic. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, they're catching him, healing on the Sabbath, and they challenge him. And, of course, Jesus directs it right back at them. So here we go again. There's another opportunity to confront Jesus, at least they hope, that, of course, now they're coming with joy because they're thinking to themselves by virtue of their observation, we've got something to confront him on that is real. There's a violation that's taken place. And there's almost a sense in which there's an excitement going on. This is what happens when, when legalists see someone violating a standard. I've got to go correct them. I've got to show them. I've, I've got to, I've got to you know, be the, 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 the police, so to speak, of their lives. Verse 2. And they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, hear this. It doesn't mean that the disciples had not cleaned their hands. It means that they, they, they did not go through the ritual ceremony of washing their hands before they actually participated. So the issue here isn't physical cleanliness. The issue here is ceremonial cleanliness in their mind. So I can just imagine hearing them say to themselves or to each other, would you look at that? Imagine eating with unwashed hands. How ungodly. 
Now, friends, we, we don't comprehend the depth of this. This isn't just like, oh, there's Pharisees over here among the Jews, and, and the Pharisees are just getting upset because that's just what Pharisees do. They're just kind of like this ordinary group of guys that just always get upset with things. No, this is something that was true for all of the Jews. This is the standard. This is the way it was. And so what, what's happening here with disciples is a, a shock to the system. How in the world can they do that? Now notice what Jesus does, or what, what they do now as they're moving along. They're confronting Jesus, verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They're offended that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, this one who had been out and, and had been revered, who was healing people, people were flocking to see him, and, and they, he, he performed these miracles. Here he is, and he's letting his disciples eat with unwashed hands. There's a subtlety, friends, of what's going on here. The truth that we need to be clean in our hearts has been replaced by the tradition that our hands need to be clean. And this is how, how, how trivial religion can be, focusing on the externals and not focusing on the heart. And friends, this is, this is true even in Christianity today. The text should read, and I'm not correcting it, I'm just giving emphasis to the text here. Look at verse 5. Why do an emphasis here would be, your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. In other words, yes, we're concerned about the disciples, but you are their rabbi. Therefore, by virtue of the fact that you are their rabbi, you are the one who is responsible here. We're coming to confront you. But Jesus doesn't flinch a bit, does he? He refuses to be bound up by their man-made religion and this rules that they had no scriptural backing for. In fact, the Bible teaches us to stand against this kind of legalism. Galatians 5.1 tells us, For freedom Christ has set us, what? Free. Therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Those are pretty strong words. Don't slip back into this legalistic way of viewing your relationship with Christ. That was true for the early Christians. It's true even for many who are in the church today. See, legalism can't stand the freedom that you and I have in Christ. They want us to conform to their man-made traditions, but they want to steal your freedom, to intimidate you, to force you into their mold. But notice what I'm calling the real problem of defiled hearts. The problem really wasn't defiled hands at all. The problem really was their defiled hearts. Now, Jesus takes in their confrontation. He responds directly, penetratingly, biblically, and he says to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. Now, friends, sometimes there's good, friendly conversation. This was bold confrontation that Jesus is, is expressing here. This is not some small talk. This is not just some, well, you know, I think Isaiah said something. No, he's calling them out. He's saying, listen, Isaiah, you want to quote scripture? Isaiah calls you hypocrites, and here's why. 
as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. See, they're hypocrites. They're, they're play actors. They're phonies. They're people who look good on the outside, but inside their hearts are defiled. They went through the motions of the ritual traditions, but their hearts were a million miles away. Now, I wonder how many of us are guilty of that. Let me just throw out some, some questions for you. You know, when we gather together on a sunny morning, one of the things that we do is we sing, we sing songs. And these are supposed to be songs that we call worship songs. These are supposed to be songs of praise to our God. Which means that we are to be singing not just with our mouth, but with our minds and with our hearts. And we sang the song today. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty, for my soul longs and even faints for you. For here my heart is satisfied with your presence. I sing beneath the shadow of your wings. When we sing a verse like that, are we singing with, with minds that are actually thinking about the words and saying, your dwelling place, Lord, is what I long for. I just, I love being under the shadow of your wings. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts and thousands elsewhere. Now I can sing that. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is thousands elsewhere. We've all done it, right? We're going through the motions of worship and our hearts are not engaged. Now, there can be all sorts of reasons for it. And usually for us, our mind is thinking about other things, we're tired, that kind of stuff. But this is, what Jesus is exposing here is a, a system of approach to God that is completely void of the heart. And it's external. It's ceremony. We sing songs from our heart to God. Now, another area would be the, the, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, we, we, we walk up and we get our elements, we go back to our seats, and, and what we want everyone to be doing as they're doing that is just taking some time to contemplate and to think and to remember how, how God entered into their lives, how he shook them up, how he, how he breathed new life into you, and how there was nothing that you did to deserve it. And that he's the one that sought you out. And you're reflecting on that. And you say, oh, this is so wonderful. And I'm going to take the elements here. I'm going to remember what you have done for me. Or we can just be like, yeah, I'm going to sing a song, yeah. Wash and wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's a nice song. You see how you can be disengaged and just take the elements and it doesn't really mean that much. So the reality is, friends, that we too can be empty in how we worship God, just like they can be too. Now, friends, listen, it's not like the Godhead is up in heaven looking down and saying, did you, did you see the way he washed his hands? Man, he has got that down just right. 
He got the angle, and the water came just up to the edge. I just didn't touch, but got to the edge, and he, he tipped it down, and the water tripped off. And oh, we are so impressed with his ceremony that, that he must be a godly Jew. That's not how it works, friend. God is not looking at the outward ceremony independent of the heart of man. You've got to be careful when we say that because there are ceremonies that we go through that God has established. They're important. They're good. But they are empty unless the heart is engaged. So God doesn't look down and note those things. He's looking at the heart. He wants to see what is genuine, what is true, and what is actually there. And friends, this is one of the pitfalls of following the traditions of men. We no longer feel the need to depend on God. We just keep the traditions. We no longer feel the need to hear God's voice or get his leading for our lives. They just do the things the same way to keep things going. Now, let me back up here and just say a little bit. This just came to my mind, and it's true. I've ministered in the country of Russia And I know that during the times of communism, that many times the Bibles were not allowed. People couldn't have them. And and so people would keep pages of the Bible. And there there was a lot of tradition put in place during those times of difficulty for the purpose of remembering what was true. And that tradition helped carry the church through. It ended up being somewhat legalistic. But there was a good side of that tradition that kept the gospel moving and present among the people. So we got to be careful not just to say all tradition is bad because that's not the case. But this oral tradition undid what God had breathed out in giving us his law. Not only were they hypocrites, but Jesus says they were also experts at creating legal loopholes. Let me explain what's going on here. Look at verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way. In other words, you are experts of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Do you see how, how these are at odds with each other, the commandments of God and the traditions of men? He says, for Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whatever, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Where do we find that? Think of Ten Commandments, kind of important, you know. Pretty central to Jewish culture, wouldn't you agree? But, verse 11, you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban that is given to God. In other words, listen, mom and dad, I have a lot of money and I would be able to help you, but I want you to know that all my money has been devoted to the church. So I want to honor God with my money, and I know I have a responsibility to care for you, but I have a greater responsibility to care for the church. And what Jesus is saying is you cannot violate the commandment of God with a man-made practice that seems spiritual in its own purposes. Because what actually happened was they would give it to, they would give it to the Jewish tradition and end up having it for themselves, <laughs> okay? It was, it was a horrible way. It was a loophole within, the, I must say, the, the Old Testament law and, and their system. 
to say, I do not have to keep the commandment of God to honor my mother and my father. In fact, I am. It's just that I have nothing to help them with because it's all Corbin. So Jesus is saying, listen, you, you, you're experts at this. At messing and playing around with the word of God to get what you want. The, the vow in their mind to set aside this money as Corbin took priority over the revealed word of God. Listen to the pages of the Jewish Mishnah which says this. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. Let me, let me put that in modern day terms, and I don't mean this fully, but modern day terms. It is, I as your teaching pastor am preaching, and it's, it's much more of a violation if you don't do what I say than it is for you to violate the scripture. You see the foolishness of that? We, we hold the scripture, we, we stand under the word of God, not over the word of God. It is the word of God that we must, we must listen to. It is God's breathed out word. And so holding it up, honoring it, respecting it, seeking to understand it, seeking to be obedient to it is simply reflecting a heart that says, God, you've spoken, we want to listen, and we want to do what you've counseled us to do. And I come along and say, well, no, I know the Bible says this, but you need to do this. And then I say, and what I say is more important than the word of God. That's exactly what's going on here. Now, this is just one example. Jesus ends this by saying, and many such things you do. <laughs> right? Now, this is just one example. He could have gone on and on and on because there were so many examples in that Jewish tradition. But not only were they hypocrites and experts, they were also abusers. And this comes from the, the, the greater text here because notice in verse 8, it says they left the commandment of God. Verse 9, they rejected the commandment of God. Verse 13, the ultimate result, they made void the commandment of God. They were not careful in their handling of the word of God. And as such, they left it. They departed from it. They rejected it. And they emptied it of its power. Hear this, friends. Hear this. Please, please hear this. We can be guilty of the same thing. God has given us his word. We must love it. We must learn it. We must seek to understand it. And we know, if we're leaving it, we're in trouble. If we're rejecting it, we're rejecting God. And as a result, it becomes empty. It becomes worthless. Powerless. This is the dilemma. This is the problem. Jesus is exposing this legalism. Now, as we move on in this text, because these two passages really flow together, there is this explaining of the defiled heart. And he begins with people in general, just the crowds, the people, and then he, he, he has some private um, discussion with the disciples. So we have this, this general explanation, and really the content is pretty much the same. 
Verse 14, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all you and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now we're talking here not so much about the physical things, we're talking about spiritual implications. So don't, don't, don't kind of connect us and say, well, if you eat a whole bunch of McDonald's, you know, it's going to... We're not talking about the physical implications. We're talking about the spiritual implications. The eating of something that is considered unclean would then render you unclean and ceremonially unclean. And no Jew wanted that at all. So this was, the, this was radical teaching for the Jews to hear. This was the fabric of Jewish culture, of their spiritual life. It was their Hebrew spiritual DNA, so to speak. You avoided things. You said no to certain things. You carried out all these ceremonial cleansing rituals. You, you made sure you didn't do certain things on the Sabbath for fear that you would be violating the law. And Jesus, in one statement, confronts it all. So, hear this. Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, but it said, remember, all the Jews practiced this hand-washing. That's how Mark parenthetically reminds us, which, by the way, is, is a helpful indicator that Mark is speaking and writing his letter to Gentiles or to those who would be made up of Gentiles, so likely in Rome, who would be hearing this and be under persecution because he needs to explain Jewish practice. Now, friends, this is not just true of Judaism. This is true of man-centered religion in general. If you look to the religion of Mormonism, you will find all sorts of rituals and ceremonies. In particular, one of them is the baptism for the dead. But there are all sorts of rituals and ceremonies that, that have to, you have to go through. Um, Islam is full of rituals and ceremonies. I don't know if you've had the opportunity of ever you know, interacting with, with many Muslim people on this or even visiting a mosque. I, I had the privilege when I was in Ufa, Bashkortostan, which is in Russia. Uh, Bashkortostan is one of their states, we call them Orals. Um, and um, I was involved in teaching there and um, we were invited to go and take a tour of the local mosque. Now, Bashkortostan is a Muslim state, but it is a very nominal Muslim state, okay? So most people do not, you know, walk around wearing their garb and stuff. They look just like average people, but many do still go to the mosque, but they would identify themselves as Muslim. So we went into this mosque. It was really interesting. Um, we were allowed to take a tour, and we went down uh, below um, where they have their, their meeting room, and they have classrooms just like we would have in a church where they were t there was teaching going on. They had ladies in one room and men in the other room, and doing stuff, then you walked around the corner, and we were allowed to go into the, the, um, the room where they do their ceremonial washing. It's really interesting, they had this big wall, uh, and they had a number of like tap type things that were coming out of the wall, and a bench sitting along there, and there were guys, they were taking their socks and their shoes off, and they go through this whole process of, of ritual washing that's going on. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're taking it 
very seriously. They wash their hands, they wash their feet, and they wash their face. And I think they start with the face, and you go down the hands, and you go to the feet. It's kind of an order to it. <clears throat> and I observed these guys who were washing in, very, very serious in what they're doing. When we arrived, I saw a man pull in, and he was running toward the, um, toward the, the mosque. And I wasn't, you know, didn't know anything, so I just kind of noticed this guy running in. And then when we were downstairs in the, in the washing area, um, uh, he popped in and, and he went to the washing room. And he sat down just quickly. He, he probably did all the washing thing in like 15 seconds. And then he was gone. You know, I'm thinking to myself, all right, even in Islam, they have people who don't take things seriously, you know, is what I was thinking. Um, and uh, then as we left there, we went upstairs and we went into the room where the, where the people would be, be praying. And um, I noticed that the same man who had hurriedly washed his body now stood in the front with a large turban on. He was the Iman um, who was late for prayer, apparently. Um, but, you know, it was, just, it was really interesting to see how serious they are about their whole washing ceremony. Um, Hinduism has their own ceremony and cleansing. Uh, you, watch, you watch people taking a, a bath in the Ganges River, this dirty water, but they've got to go there and, and cover themselves. They, they see this as a, a really important aspect of their religion. And then, of course, Catholicism is full of ceremony. From the, the relics that are, that are revered in, in the various churches, the icons that are bowed down to, and the, the Eucharist, that is celebrated every time, which they consider to be far more important than the preaching of the word because it is the very word of uh, the very body and blood of Jesus that the wafer and the, 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 the wine becomes. And it's all ceremonialism. And friends, I'm just trying, to, just trying to help us understand that there's this idea when man is left to himself that it is, it is all ceremony. I've got to somehow show God how much I want to please him by my actions. That becomes then this religious burden. And it comes in a variety of fashions. We've just looked at a few of them. But then he, there's this private interaction he has with the disciples. Again, the same conclusions are taking place here. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. You, you know, catch this. He's, he's emphasizing here the place of the heart. This is what happened with the Pharisees, right? This is what Isaiah prophesied. They do all this worship stuff, but their hearts are far from me. Now, friends, again, this was a radical message and one that the disciples had lots more questions about because this is what they grew up with. This is what they understood, and he's now challenging that. Now, think about this. One of the disciples, even after Jesus is gone, still struggles with this. His name is Peter. He still struggled with the old Judaistic practices and was slipping back to them. Even the book of Galatians is written to a church that is slipping back into the Jewish traditions. So what happened? God had to confront Peter by, by virtue of a dream and show him, hey, listen, all these things are clean. 
And then the Apostle Paul had to confront him and to tell me he was wrong. He didn't like it much. But friends, if, if Peter struggled with this, then certainly we would. So we must see how deeply this understanding of ceremony and, and fencing is ingrained into the Jewish thinking of the day. And friends, it is, it is in the context even of, of our Christian experience. I'm going to share with you some, some ways in which this legalism or fencing takes place today. I kind of grew up in a Christian culture that had a number of fences, um, and I'll, I'll list them for you. Not, not all of them necessarily bad. It all depends on how far you take it. For example, clothing. You go into some churches, if you're a man and you're not wearing a tie, it's considered to be incredible disrespect. You're a man. You come to church. And at church, what do you do? You wear a tie. And you're like, well, where does it say that in Scripture? Well, it's an expression of the heart to say, I'm dressed appropriately for the occasion. And I get some of that. Now, I happen to wear a jacket today. I'm wearing the jacket because it's kind of cool today, right? Not because, you know, I want to impress anyone. You know, so is it, is it wear a tie and a suit or, or, or jeans and a T-shirt? And someone can come to, come to church and, and be here in jeans and a t-shirt and, and be just as worshipful and just as respectful. Why? Because the issue isn't what you're wearing. The issue is the heart of the person and what kind of culture are they coming out of. And you might go into a context where everyone is just dressed to the T and it's, it's not just about wearing a tie and a, and a jacket. It's talking about wearing the best. And so it's jewelry. It's all your hair is just in place and it's just, we're, we're going to church today. Going to show everyone who we really are. That's all pride. It's all arrogance. And that takes away from worship. I sure hope here at Gateway people aren't concerned about how they come to church, how they dress. Obviously, there's issues of modesty and stuff like that. We're not talking about that. We're just talking about these fences that can be put up. About music, you know, drums and guitar. It's too loud. Versus an organ. Now listen, I've heard organs before. And some of them can pierce your ears. So I was always humorous to me. You know, the older generation in one of the churches I used to pastor was like, you know, you know the drums are just too loud. You know, it's like, yeah, well, the organ's too loud. <laughs> right? It's just, there's preference issues. There's nothing moral about one or the other. It's preference. I've heard this. Any kind of music in the church with drums is sinful. I've heard that preached. I've heard that taught. Or only those who raise their hands during worship are truly communing with God. Ever heard that before? That's why you have different levels. I'm somewhat spiritual. I'm getting there. I've arrived, you know, however you want to look at that. It's a pressure to do that kind of stuff. And it's like, hey, if you want to raise your hands in worship, that's fine. You know, sometimes I do, but I, I, I typically, you know, I typically, you know, hold the box, you know, right here. Um, so what about the attitude? I mean, there's, there's this, when it comes to worship, there's, there's reverence or there's celebration. Some people like it to be quiet so they can contemplate and, and think. 
other people. Just they want celebration. And friends, there's a time for both. Just got to figure out what that's going to be. What about food and drink? Some people are vegetarians. Some people are vegans. I think they're all missing out, personally. Um, Some are meat and potatoes people, right? Now, friends, you see how all these things can become, in a culture of a church, fences based on typically the leadership of the church saying, well, you know, we're gateway is, we really want to encourage you to eat the kale salad at the next potluck. In fact, we're, we're just going to have salads at the next potluck because um, we really want to help you be more like Daniel. Um, And then you can feel this pressure. It's like, oh, there's a bunch of people in the church, and they're, they're kind of leaning in this direction. You know, they're, they're all in the paleo diet. So all the paleo people are on this side of the church, and all the non-paleo are over here. And then you have the vegans back in the corner saying they're all nasty, right? And it's like you end up having this, this division in the church based on something that Scripture does not clearly communicate. But we allow it to rise to a level, and it creates fences. And it creates fences that keep us away from experiencing the beauty of the gospel. Now, here's a few more statements. And I'm just sharing this because these are things that came to my mind as I was, as I was contemplating on my own life and wrestling with all this. You know, you know Gateway in particular, are, are you reading your Bible through in a year? I know, you know, we put, it, we put a, an emphasis on that at the end of the year because we want to encourage people to, to kind of jump into the next year and, and read their Bibles. And you say, well, I, I'm reading my Bible. Oh, but are you using the Robert Murray McShane program? See? So, now, you might be reading your Bible, but are you using this one? So all the McShane people now are over in a corner. And so you have the, then you get this. So you have the, the, the people who are vegan McShane readers now off in a different corner. And you have the, the meat and potato McShane people. You see how complicated this gets now, right? You know, the, do you use the only true Bible, the King James Version? That was all the rage when I was in college. It's like, man, I did not know that still was going on. Um, here's one. True Christians only vote Republican. Huh? I think people have that attitude. Sadly. The Bible isn't about rules, it's about grace. You might say, well, yeah, I I agree with that. Well, it all depends on what you mean by that. (laughs) Because the Bible isn't about rules, but if you read the word of God, there is going to be a line where God says, this violates my law. This is sinful. Is there still grace there? Absolutely. Grace does not mean the absence of anything that God wants you to do. Grace is the whole attitude of favor that God has bestowed upon you to draw you to himself and breathe into you new life. How about this one? It is a Christian's duty to take care of the planet. I know some of you have put metal cans in the wrong receptacle. And I want to say you are being sinful in doing that. All right? I know some of you, your, your regular waste was full, and so you slipped in your green waste something that shouldn't go in there. But you put it under some grass so no one could see it. I know that you've done that. Yeah. 
What kind of Christian are you to drive your Mercedes-Benz or BMW to church when there are homeless people laying on the side of the road? Now, you see, one of the things that happens with this whole legalism thing is this, this shaming, this kind of guilt-tripping thing. And that's not the way Scripture works. Guilt has its proper place in showing us our sin, but that comes from the Word of God being explained and exposed not from man adding to that and saying, this violates God's law. Now, I maybe spent too long on that, but I hope you get the point. Defilement doesn't come from the outside, but get this, defilement does come from the inside, verse 20 and following. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Now, this, friends, this is so Important to see what, what Jesus is saying. Let me speak to the men for a minute. Your eyes might wander and your eyes might land on maybe a, a, an image of a woman who is not properly dressed. And you might say, you know, I start to think some thoughts I shouldn't be thinking. And you might be tempted to say, that woman shouldn't be dressed that way. And guess what? You may be right. But based on this passage, it doesn't matter because it's your heart that is the battleground. Your heart has to say, even though that's out there, I am choosing not to dwell on that because according to this passage, sexual immorality, adultery, sensuality come from the heart. So we can't say, oh, it's all their problem, it's all their fault. No, you can be disciplined enough to say, my heart has to be mastered. You can go down this list, sexual immorality. That's all illicit sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting. In other words, wanting what does not belong to you. Remember, we're coming into Christmas time, and our kids are going to be coveting. Listen, their coveting didn't happen because you showed up at Toys R Us. That coveting was already in their heart. And so as a parent, you're, you're ministering the truth of God's word to help them see that there's this natural tendency to desire things that you don't need to have. When you go into Toys R Us, you want everything. And I'm just talking about the adults. And then you have deceit, or there's wickedness, I missed that. That's, that's evil plotting. It's the kind of person that's just always looking to, to do something nasty, right? Deceit, to bait and deceive people. Sensuality, that's the kind of open lewdness and defiance in the public arena. Right? That would be the gay pride parade. That would be a good example of that kind of thing. Envy, literally an evil eye. It's always looking what others have. Slander, pride, foolishness. This, this, this list is worth further, further contemplation by, by us as individuals. 
But Jesus' point here is to emphasize that the outside doesn't defile the inside. The heart is already evil. This is what your heart actually looks like. So stand in the mirror. This is what you see. Isn't it a wonderful picture? Well, I don't like that. That's not very nice, Pastor Rod. I'm not here to be nice. I can be unnice in a gentle way. Right? But it's true because God has revealed it to be so. He says, all these evil things come from within and they defile the person, the whole being. Now, in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, God reveals to his people that because of their wickedness, because of their constant rebellion, because of their constant rejection of the prophets that he has sent them over and over and over again, and they continue to practice their sin, they continue their idolatry, that he would now discipline them by the hands of foreigners who would come and destroy them and carry many of them off as slaves into other countries. Micah, speaking in, uh, around the same time, says this. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 and following. With what shall I come before the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Just think about that statement. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so what happened was as the people heard again from Isaiah and Jeremiah about what God was going to do, rather than turn to God in repentance, rather than have their hearts changed, you know what they did? They upped the ante on how much sacrifice was going to take place. Well, let's sacrifice more bulls. Let's sacrifice more sheep. Let's just have more and more sacrifices and ceremony. Somehow God will see, look at us. Look at what we're doing here. Aren't you pleased? And he looks down and says, no, I'm not. Why? Because I want your heart. And this is what happens with legalism. It's just external. It's ceremony. We're trying to please God by the things that we're do, excuse me, doing or not doing. And God is not pleased with that. He wants heart change. Jesus would later say to the disciples, you can't clean the outside of the cup and call yourself pure when the inside of the cup is filthy. Now, this is where our text ends. And for you, unfortunately, that's not where the sermon ends. Because... There is something that I think needs to be answered, and it's answered in the context. The question is, if this is true, if this is the condition of my heart, then, then what is it that I need to do? What is, what is the hope for me? And friends, our, our text, the context of this text reveals so much about this answer. Get your Bibles and look at Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I just want to remind you that Mark is giving a record of Jesus, but he's trying to show us in this record of Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. 
But this Jesus who comes, comes in a unique manner with a radical message and a, a call for radical change. And we find it there in chapter 1, verses four, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So he comes preaching. What does he come preaching? The gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And what is he calling for with that gospel? For those who are hearing the gospel to repent and believe. Friends, this is radical heart Change, And we see as the story unfolds, Jesus might go into some towns and villages and he might heal some people, but he has come to preach the gospel. He has come to proclaim the good news. That's what he has come for. So our text is giving us the why of the formula. Why does Jesus come to preach the gospel and call us to repentance and belief? Because our hearts are defiled. Our hearts need cleansing, true cleansing. What did Jesus say to the disciples when they asked the question? What? Do you still not understand? What did he ask when uh, last week when we were studying, the, when they were in the boat? All right, their hearts, Mark says, were still hardened because they didn't understand about the loaves and the fishes. There was a hardness in the heart of the disciples. And Jesus here is trying to get to the heart of the matter. He's trying to get them to see their own hearts. Now, this was a radical change, a radical teaching, a radical idea that Jesus is proclaiming here. And this is a radical teaching even in our context and culture. Hear this. If you believe that man is born basically good, you're in for a shock because that's not what the scriptures teach. If you believe that the answer to man's problems is more and more education, education is good, but that doesn't solve the heart of man problem. If you think the answer to man's problem is psychology or changing the environment or socialism that brings equality, you're in for a shock. That is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures show us that man's basic problem is his heart condition. And he needs an answer for that heart condition. So let's consider now a few passages of scripture that help us understand the nature of God's plan for change. First of all, Jeremiah 17, 9. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful told there, above all things, and desperately sick, again, describing the condition of the heart. Who can understand it? Well, there's only one who can understand it, and that's God, and that's why we read next. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It's only, it's only God that understands the heart fully and completely. And then Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and following going to read through verse 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. In other words, no one's basically good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the condition of man. So what's the answer? Who is the answer? I want you to consider what Jesus says to a Pharisee um, by the name of Nicodemus. John chapter 3 and verse 3. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What man needs is not an upgrade. All right? You don't need some kind of like battery charge in your side to say, okay, now I'm, I'm fully charged and I'm ready to go. Um, what man needs is a, a, a complete change, a radical complete change. Using automo- automotive terminology here, let me say it this way. What man needs is not a rebuilt engine. What he needs is a brand new engine. And that's what God gives us in this new birth, this being born again. That's what Ezekiel talks about in chapter 36, verse 26. He says, and I will give you a new heart. This is God speaking. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And the apostle Paul emphasizes this radical change when he says the following. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this is what happens then. God, through the gospel, through our conversion, gives us a a new heart. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. What does the scripture say? For what? For good works. So the idea of regeneration is a radical new birth, and that new birth leads to a new life, and that new life uh, uh, involves a new heart, and the end result then is that we are new creations of God. So when Jesus hung on the cross, he died for our sins. He ushered in a way to God. He provided a way by which our defiled hearts could be truly and completely purified, through the blood of Christ, through the cleansing that happened because of Jesus uh, paying for our sin, past, present, and future, he brought spiritual life where there was no spiritual life. Now, friends, this is, this is really important to see. Because when you look at your, your coworkers, when you look at your children who are unbelievers, when you look at your neighbor we, we, we need to see them as God sees them. Their hearts are defiled. And, and the solution isn't somehow external changes. It's, it's not that they come to church. It's not just that they attend the Bible study. The goal is that their hearts would be radically changed by the gospel. That there would be this regeneration, this new birth that is taking place. And if you are a follower of Christ, this has happened to you. Now, how to fight against legalism. Let's just close with that. I have 
four things to finish up with here. These are my concluding thoughts. Number one, listen to Scripture, not man. In other words, be a Berean. What the Bereans did is they listened to what Paul had to say, and then they searched the Scriptures to find out whether what he was saying was true. Um, it, is, it is a huge responsibility put on my shoulders to unpack the Word of God for, for God's people week after week. That's a divine calling. It's what God desires. But ultimately, my job is not to impress you with me. My job is to be a mouthpiece for God's Word to come to you in a way that you understand it, that you can, you can grab a hold of it and you can apply it better. And I would say with this, make sure you're staying on the line of Scripture. Here's what happens. When people typically grow up in a legalistic culture or find themselves in a legalistic culture and they, they break out of it, what happens? The pendulum swings the complete opposite direction. And what happens is they move down to this place called license or antinomianism, which says, I am free. I no longer have to be in this bondage. And, and what they miss is the fact that there is still a line of Scripture. There is still truth that God wants to convey. Just because we're saying legalism is sinful doesn't mean that adultery is now okay. Okay? You can't let the pendulum swing back. So this is one of the challenges we have to have. If you're coming out of a legalistic culture, listen to Scripture, not man. Stay on the line of Scripture and avoid the pendulum swing of going the opposite direction. Fight to study the Word of God, to understand the Word of God as it has been revealed. Secondly, follow Christ, not man. Now, you might say, well, that's kind of a trite statement, isn't it? I mean, it's like, obviously, we're supposed to follow Christ. No, the, the, the point here is this, that that even I as your pastor may say some things, it is, it is your job then as a believer to see that, that you're seeking to please him, not me. Does that make sense? That your goal is to humble yourself before Christ, not your pastor or not your elders, so to speak. What, what we need to be doing and what I need to be doing is helping you to do that, <laughs> Okay? Number three, believe the gospel, not your works. There is nothing that you did to somehow force God's hand in, in, in bringing you to salvation. Um, what does the song say? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's nothing that you contribute to the whole conversion process. You simply respond by faith and repentance in Christ for what he has done for you. Um, but it's also important then to say, what is the gospel? What actually happened to me theologically at that point in time that I am, I am justified by God? It's a one point in time where I have been, I've been declared righteous, not because of anything in me, but because of Christ and the fact that he's clothed me in his righteousness. But now that I'm a believer, I can rest in that declaration of my standing before God. And I can live my life in light of it because that's not going to change. Which leads us then to the last one, and that is this. 
growing in maturity. This is your own, this is own, your own spiritual growth. This is your own spiritual pursuit. We call it progressive sanctification. You've been declared righteous, but now you need to live in light of that justification in such a way that you're putting off sin. You're growing in maturity and, and your understanding of what God desires of you. We all bring into our Christian walk um, habits and behaviors and sins from the past, so to speak, that we bring them in and we continue to sin. Although the sin is paid for, we need to still repent of that sin and grow in, in such a way that we are reducing the habitual exercise of that sin in such a way that we're glorifying God. We're, we're seeking to please him by being faithful to the practice of pursuing Christ and becoming more and more mature. Placing ourselves on that path is going to help you to, to avoid the error of legalism. Now, friends, I realize that this passage and this topic is not like, whoa, man, that was so good, man. But friends, we need this. This is at the core, this is at the heart of the wrestling match that is going on in our heart. We want to be careful that we don't slip into some kind of legalism, whether that be the tone of our church or the tone of an individual. We want to make sure that we're staying on the line of Scripture, being careful not to say more or less than it because the implications of that are devastating. Lord, help us today to consider how we are to respond to our time this morning. For some, Lord, this might be an exercise in reflection, an exercise in, in heart um, consideration of some particular sins that we have. For others, it might be a breath of fresh air because we've living, been living a life that, 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 that is in bondage to this legalism. We may have come from places where you know, we have escaped this and uh, maybe we were off running into, into antinomianism or, or a license in such a way that we need to be drawn back to your scriptures. Lord, help us through your word, by your spirit, to be conformed to the image of your son. We ask this now in your name. Amen.